This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Sex and disability, two terms which, when taken together, stir up a lot of emotion. For non-disabled people, the sexuality of people with disabilities is sometimes perceived as frightening, other times as abnormal. But people with disabilities themselves want romantic attachments and to explore their sexuality. They want to go on dates, experience the flush of a crush, form stable relationships, and even experience the bitter disappointment of heartbreak. However, various social actors like family members or support workers, as well as a range of institutions, constrain the sexuality of people with disabilities, especially those with intellectual disabilities. It's possibly the most transformative and radical social change for people with disabilities, to have the freedom to love. Today, we discuss disability and sexuality. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyda Gupta. Very excited to be with you again today. We're talking today about sex and disability because the topic of disability and sexuality is so taboo that I think there are very few places where we can have a frank conversation about it. My guest today is an instructor at the University of Calgary whose research deals with topics of disability, sexuality, and gender identity. I'm joined today by Alan Martino who is in Ottawa. Hello and welcome to the program. Thanks so much for taking a couple minutes out of your day to chat with us on The Pulse. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So Alan, why does this taboo around sex and disability persist? Yes, um, I think that we still need to create more opportunities to talk about this. A lot of people are scared of touching this topic, especially service providers and sometimes family members. And I can tell you, uh, when I first started doing this research, I was still an undergraduate student. And I remember I contacted multiple organizations at the time, and some of them were so afraid of the topic that they hang up on me (laughs) as soon as I mentioned the word sexuality, or they simply said that they just didn't have anything to share about this topic. So I very quickly realized that some people are just afraid of touching this topic, or they feel very uncomfortable. But we need to be having those conversations, right? Because people are having experiences or they want to have intimate lives. And that's important as well. Mm. You know, one of the things that's striking is that a lot of the conversations about disability and sexuality seem not to involve people with disabilities at all. And so did you find that the people that you were being encouraged to talk to were maybe caregivers or parents or doctors and not really people who had the lived experience of disability themselves? Exactly. And that is extremely critical, right? Nothing about us without us. Uh, When I first started doing this work with people with intellectual disabilities, it was very interesting that some of the questions that I got from ethics review boards, for example, was, why do I need to talk to people with disabilities? Why not just Mm -hmm. talk to family members or support workers? And I really had to do a a lot of work in terms of educating, you know, the boards in terms of 
why is that that is so central to include the voices of those that are most impacted, right? Who have those experiences and should be able to share those, right? Let me flesh this out a bit more with you. Um, I was when I was reading your book chapter, there was one incident, as you related about a, a person on the ethics review board who said, I don't understand why you need to talk to people with disabilities. And we were just discussing it right now. Sexuality studies is an exciting and emerging field, and a lot of people are embracing it with all of its nuance. Why is it so important to include the people, the the voices of people with disabilities, uh, to improve our understanding of human sexuality? It's extremely important. Um, in my work in the community, I've heard multiple times that people with intellectual disabilities want to have an opportunity to speak on their own behalf. Right. Even when we look at the literature today, we have quite a bit of studies uh, talking about the perspectives of family members, support workers, all these other social actors. But we are not taking as much, you know, um, giving much space to people with disabilities themselves to share what is their priorities in their lives? What do they mm. desire? Um, how do they understand love and pleasure? You know, and very soon, too, what I realized is that because we're not including people with disabilities in these conversations, Sexuality becomes very limited. We are very good at talking about, you know, sexual health, you know, STIs and things like this. But we're not talking to people or allowing people to speak about questions of pleasure, identity, more positive aspects of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there are stereotypes? I mean, I know that there are stereotypes in popular culture that... Um, that equates certain ideas of sexuality and disability that treat it as abnormal or unnatural. How much of a hold do you think these stereotypes about disability and sexuality have on our collective imagination? They, they're much, um, very much alive today. Uh, what I notice is that it's almost like two extremes. So on mm-hmm. one hand, we associate folks with intellectual disabilities as childlike and innocent. Right. And the same way that we treat children in our society, we tend to desexualize people. Right. Mm-hmm. The notion that people with intellectual disabilities can desire relationships and sex. It's so mind shocking for some people. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you. Uh, and so that's one ex- extreme. And the other one that I see is this notion that people with intellectual disabilities have this excessive or dangerous sexuality. So where they're, you know, seen as likely doing something appropriate in the community and they're being a danger to others. So it's very sad that often I see these two extremes where no matter where people end up, right, uh, they're still usually experiencing lots of restrictions in terms of their access to sexual rights, right, and information Mm -hmm. and conversations. What can you tell us a little about your project? So you've referenced it before. You had a chance to, as part of your your PhD work and beyond, you you had a chance to speak to over, I think, three dozen people with intellectual disabilities in Ontario. Tell us about the origins of that project and how it all came about. Yeah, so uh, my interest in disability studies and disability really comes from two places. One, uh, growing up with an older sibling with a disability, really uh, made me aware of some of his experiences, you know, with ableism and some of the challenges as a family and trying to support a loved one to have the romantic life he wants, but also being aware of some of the vulnerabilities around it, right? 
trying to navigate those lines has been very challenging as a family. And that really made me interested in looking at this. And the mm-hmm. second piece is that I've been working with organizations for people with intellectual disabilities for decades now. And I never forget one particular day where we were doing this improvisation exercise in an arts class. And this young man with Down syndrome, he's doing a scene about friendship. And, and he said something like, love is natural. We all love. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the room was very comfortable, okay with that sentence. But then two minutes later, the young man says, sex, that's what I want. And then <laughs> that changes the dynamics in the room, right? So yeah, there were course. support workers and people with disabilities. The support worker was looking at, you know, they were looking at each other, not knowing what to do. So mm-hmm. simply the person leading the session changed the topic. He said, isn't the weather beautiful today? And he oh boy. Stopped, he stopped the scene and that was mm-hmm. it. We moved on. That mm-hmm. moment was very striking to me because here's a young man saying something that is significant in his life, right? And completely got shut down. And by mm-hmm. getting shut down, you know, shut down like this, I think that it gives people a message, right? It says that it's not okay to talk about sex or pleasure or love, right? Or that, you know, it's just not okay. And that's not a good message, I think, to give people. Do you think people need to sit down with their discomfort? I mean, the person in the room who was moderating the session probably had a moment of, oh, my gosh, I mean, what just happened here? Um, Do you think that if uh, as parents or family members or support workers who interact with people with disabilities, there needs to be a moment of reckoning with the discomfort that we might encounter? And we need to ask, you know, maybe they need to ask themselves, why do I have this moment of discomfort here? Absolutely. People need to be thinking about their own, you know, intimate lives in a way and how do they understand sexuality, what they learned about it. I think, you know, some people um, have a lot of discomfort. Some people even have bad information about sexuality themselves, right? Like support workers and family members. But I think what I try to always emphasize, especially to, you know, uh, support workers, is even if you're not fully comfortable addressing questions or addressing situations, you need to have then at least a toolbox of resources, people, you know, and communities that can help you support that person. Mm-hmm. Shutting down the conversation and just like moving on, it's not the best way. I'm Joita Gupta. My guest today is Alan Martino, who is an instructor at the University of Calgary and is joining us today from Ottawa. Based on your many conversations with people with intellectual disabilities, Alan, what were some of the common themes that you came across? What were some of the barriers that they talked about in terms of trying to pursue romantic relationships? Unfortunately, a lot of barriers. Um, I think one Mm -hmm. of the main ones was the level of infantilization. I mean, Mm -hmm. I spoke with adults, right? These are folks over 18 years of age, older, they're older on guardians. But what I found is that individuals getting these messages that were extremely infantilizing. For example, people who were told that they should wait until their 50s and 60s to even consider having a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or people, for example, who did not even have control over privacy. They were not allowed to bring guests, you know, or a person to their house. They were not allowed to have pornography in their room. They were not allowed to... um, have overnight people, right? Or even lock their bedroom doors. Mm-hmm. So the level of infantilization, the way that we're um, treating people is really bad. I think the other piece too is the information that people are getting about sexuality. 
So some people, for example, are still learning about the, you know, the bees <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, and those really infantilizing messages that we talk about to children, right? Um, or even information that is only focused on the negative aspects of sexuality. Mm-hmm. So people are really comfortable talking about abuse, unplanned pregnancies and STIs. But when it comes to talking about pleasure or more positive aspects of sexuality, they simply never had an opportunity, a lot of them, to even talk about that before. Mm. Let's go in depth with some of these things. So I was really struck by the example of one of the interviewees, and you were just referencing as well, that he was uh, 36 years old, was never allowed to be in a relationship, wanted to be in a relationship, but was told to, quote unquote, focus on his homework. um, And maybe dating would be in the cards later when he was in his 50s. When you think about anecdotes like that, what would you say the role of parents is in this situation? Because they have a a desire to keep their children safe. But then there's also, as we discussed previously in our conversation, a need to contend with the fear and the uncertainty and the discomfort around disability and sexuality. So how do parents balance those things? Yes, uh, that's an amazing point. I think that families can be amazing allies in this process, right? One of the things that, for example, I always try to engage with families is just shift the message around vulnerability. Often when we think about vulnerability, we think about individuals and we think about how people might make bad choices or wrong choices. But what I ask parents to think about is how we make people more vulnerable by not giving them the tools, right? Not talking about sexuality, not allowing people to make mistakes. So I think that we need to look at how we are making people more vulnerable instead of how people are inherently supposedly vulnerable. So that's one of the pieces that I try to change. Uh, for example, if we're not talking to people about and you know sexuality and giving them the vocabulary to speak about it, how do we expect people to be able to share experiences and navigate sexual life safely, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the big challenges here. And we have research that shows that the more we talk about sexuality with people with intellectual disabilities, the more likely they are to make, you know, in quotes, good, you know, uh, safe choices in their romantic lives. The last thing I'll say about this is that what I found very commonly was that people with intellectual disabilities have a very small room to make mistakes. Like if I were to ask people here listening, how many of us dated someone in the past and we look back and we're like, oh my goodness, why did I date Michael for that long, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't get judged in a way that of like questioning our ability, our cognitive ability to make good choices, right? And then encouraged to not have relationships at all. But that's what I saw with a lot of my participants, actually. The room to make mistakes, which is how a lot of us learn about relationships, was very small and sometimes people got punished for supposedly making bad choices in their lives. Mm. In fact, you know, people without disabilities are encouraged to make mistakes. They're now told to try and have multiple partners, you know, and Mm -hmm. try to experience different people, learn about how how to be in a relationship, don't commit to the first person. So it's really interesting to see that there's a different approach when it comes to people with intellectual disabilities. Do you think, Alan, there's a role here for sex education? I mean, obviously, sex education for people with intellectual disabilities, but maybe to also broaden the scope of sex education that we provide everybody to to sort of take a more holistic view of sex and sexuality and the uh, the kinds of bodies that one might encounter. 
absolutely. I think the sex, sex education should be, you know, improved and giving made more accessible to everyone. I think everyone can benefit from this. But even in terms of, you know, disability, uh, one of the things that I see is accessibility. So mm-hmm. one, a lot of my participants, they were either like completely removed from sex education on the assumption that they shouldn't or shouldn't or wouldn't want to get the information. But for those who did receive sex education, it was delivered in ways that were just not accessible. I talked to one young man, for example, who was extremely confused about the banana. <laughs> you know, like the instructor mm-hmm. of the course had this banana that was they were talking about. But for mm-hmm. him, it wasn't as straightforward, right, the connection. Uh, so he didn't understand why a banana was part of the course. So I think mm-hmm. thinking about that and moving also beyond heterosexuality. We mm-hmm. see that there is sex education, but sometimes it's always this kind of typical heterosexual, you know, non-disabled forms of sexuality. We need to be thinking about sexuality and sex in much broader ways, right? In more interesting ways, I think. I actually wanted to ask you about how the gender identity might intersect with questions of sexuality when it comes to people with intellectual disabilities. Were the men in your studies perceived differently from the women? Did they end up having different experiences? Yes. Um, what I noticed very quickly is that women, they were way less likely to have conversations around pleasure, uh, for mm. example. And they were talking a lot more about vulnerability. And, you know, and I think that it's a very important uh, topic for sure. So, for example, half of the women that I spoke with uh, had experienced some form of abuse, you know, at some point in their lives. So this is a really high number. And if we look at the literature, we also see that there are high numbers in comparison with non-disabled people. Um, But at the same time, you know, the most troubling part was just women learning very traditional ways of being a woman. Uh, instead of learning that there are multiple ways of being a woman and there are multiple ways of identifying oneself as a feminist or a woman or, you know. So that's to me that was the troubling uh, part, just the limited uh, scripts that people get. And if they don't succeed in fulfilling those roles, and they told me in the interview multiple times, right, about the importance of being a good woman or a good man, as they said. And if you fail to be that, uh, you're punished. Right. So I spoke with men, for example, who crossed the line and then he got significantly punished. Right. Like, so I, I saw that very often. You mentioned earlier on, just as we got talking today, that sexuality for people with intellectual disabilities was sometimes seen as infantilizing uh, or people with disabilities were infantilized when it came to sexuality. But other times the sexuality was perceived as dangerous were men more likely to be perceived as dangerous compared to women? Yes, you got that right. So there was a very clear message that women were, you know, vulnerable, but men had this message that they were potentially a danger to others in the community and that they should, being a good man is about controlling their sexuality, controlling their desires. Uh, There was a very clear message. Even when you look at the types of uh, sex, you know, information that they got, uh, it was really about women. It was about setting the boundaries, not allowing anyone to touch them. Men was about never touching anyone. And, you know, I even talked to couples, right? Um, couples that had been dating for over five years or sometimes even 10 years. And what really stood out to me is that they had learned that being a good man and a good woman in a relationship is never touching each other. 
sexually. Mm-hmm. So even though they have been in very serious relationships for a long time, they're never living together. They're not allowed to have privacy and be in their bedroom alone. Uh, some couples, they you know live separately. They're not allowed to call each other after 7 p.m., so there are so many challenges, you know, in having those relationships that even for those who manage to, you know, pass so many barriers and have those long-term relationships, the relationships seem a little bit different from what we would typically think about a, this a relationship looks like, right? I know couples, mm-hmm. for example, that are not even allowed to hold hands or kiss on the cheek. People who got punished um, because they did simple things like that. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is just reflecting on my own life in high school, in university. Uh, Not everything was about sex education. A lot of the learning just happened by being around peers and being around other people and learning the social cues that go along with dating and relationships. What sort of experience did the people you talked to have with establishing some of those social cues? Absolutely. It's, a, it's one of the pieces of sexuality is the learning the scripts, right? Like, how do you approach mm-hmm. someone? How do you start relationships? And I did speak with, a, you know, a significant number of people who had just no idea about even how to start a relationship or where to go, right? Things that we take for granted sometimes, right? We assume that people know where to go, right? If they want to meet someone or they know mm-hmm. how to have a date. Um, but people are just experiencing so much isolation, infantilization, and so many constraints to being romantic and having those experiences that they simply don't even know. So, for example, I spoke with this young man where he really wants to have a relationship. He's seeing his, you know, his sister having a romantic relationship and being happy. He wants the same. And then he asked the support worker, like, what do I do to have a romantic relationship? The only advice he got was just go out more. I mean, that doesn't help, <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. that is not very helpful um, advice. Um, I spoke with people who are trying to navigate, for example, dating apps. But it's mm. dating apps is a whole new world, too, as you know, like in terms of understanding how interactions happen, right? How do you identify good partners? How do you engage in that? And yet, what I saw is that none of the participants that I spoke with had any support in doing that. So they're just kind of trying, you know, it's by trial and error. And sometimes some people simply choose not to even try because they're too afraid or hesitant or they think that they have no choice or no, uh, there's just no way that they will succeed. And, you know, this is a good important piece too, is the self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. Putting yourself out there takes self-esteem. Like, you you know, you need to feel good when you go out and approach someone Um, Mm -hmm. and Quite a few member participants talked about having a sense of low uh, self-confidence, low self-esteem. And I think that is also important. We need to look at how our culture devalues disabled people so much, you know, and we give information and we give a message to disabled people that make people feel that way. So what needs to change Uh, with so many things uh, that need to be worked on? Where do you think we can have the biggest impact? Well, first of all, we need to actually respect the rights of people with disabilities, the right to access accurate, good information about their rights, their sexualities. We need to give people access to privacy, opportunities to have relationships and make mistakes sometimes. Mm -hmm. As we're going to be walking alongside people and supporting the best way we can. 
So I think that would be already a big piece. And change needs to happen from disabled communities, right? We have amazing examples coming out from the community. For example, the drag syndrome group, right? This is an amazing group of drag queens, right? With Down syndrome Mm -hmm. who are showing like sexual bodies and beautiful bodies and performance. So I think drawing on this richness in the community is the best way to go. Alan Martino, thanks a lot for being on the program today. Thank you so much again for having me. It was a pleasure. That was instructor and researcher at the University of Calgary, Alan Martino, and he was in Ottawa today. If you missed any of our conversation, you can find the podcast on the favorite po- on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Alan Martino for being my guest on the program today. Nisreen Abdul Majid is our technical producer, and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay be safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.